So 2 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going to start us with prayer, though. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we ask you to bless this time in our service today as we, we worship you by listening to you. Um, we, we pray that you give us ears to listen to the, the words of, uh, that you've caused to be written down and uh, given to us. Help us to be encouraged in our lives to think about division among God's people and the great, the great cost of it and, Lord, the importance of pursuing peace. Uh, we pray that you would um, bless the preaching of your word, that you give me strength in speaking to your people, and you'd give your people strength in listening and paying attention and being willing to uh, confront their own thoughts and desires and behavior and words, um, knowing, Lord, that you're a gracious God who forgives freely. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to look at a few practical lessons about division this morning, um, division within the people of God. But ultimately, what I want you to see is that when division occurs, we must always remember it will not win. God's promises will always win. And his promise remains to unite all his people into one kingdom under the rule of the Prince of Peace. He's drawing people out from among all the nations of the world. He's making them holy. And he's forming them into one nation as members of the body of Christ. But where does division within his people begin? We'll see that in, in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. So let's go ahead and read those. Chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Division begins with other kings. That's my first point here. Division begins with other kings. Last week we saw that David was made king of Judah, um, and he offers at least to be the king of the Jabesh Gileadites, uh, this tribe in northern Israel, but he's got to be patient a little while longer as the opposing uh, king shows up, this guy named Ishbosheth, just like other kings arise in our lives in opposition to Jesus. These other kings aren't called Ishbosheth. Uh, often they're not even people, though we might make someone in our lives more important than Jesus, our children perhaps, or our spouse, or even some potential perfect uh, mate out there that we place our hopes on meeting someday. But the other kings of our lives can also be ideas. Like, you know, I don't deserve what's happened to me. I deserve better than what God has given me in my life. 
or uh, they might be jobs or hobbies that we prioritize over Jesus and over the, the way that he calls us to live. Whatever these things might be, when they become king, they divide us from the body of Christ because they reduce our loyalty to the true king. They make us doubt our citizenship in his kingdom. In some cases, they tear people in our churches away from us, or at least for a time, and that can be very discouraging for us. But this text is going to remind us that God's promises will always win. Other kings will rise up in the church. Other kings will rise up in our own lives, but they will not win. Now, turning back to our text, Ishbosheth is not really the other king here. It's really Abner who's in charge. Maybe you guys noticed that, right? Look at just the force of those verbs in verse 8. Abner took Ishbosheth, he brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead. Uh, you, it, it, it's pretty clear here, right, who's actually in charge, who's actually saying what happens. Uh, this guy Abner, he was Saul's cousin. He was the commander of Saul's army. He's a seasoned military warrior, a relative of Saul's. Now, you may remember even back to like when David was fighting the, the giant Goliath, right? This is in David's young years. Abner's standing there right next to Saul, uh, watching as that happens. And, and when Saul is chasing David around the country of Israel, Abner's right there next to Saul. He's leading the men. He's heading things up. So, you know, Abner, he's sort of a little bit like a David's arch enemy, especially now that Saul is gone. Um, Andrew, can you get my map up? I want to just give you guys a little bit of context. We, again, we're covering a lot of ground here. And so just to, just to kind of show you uh, what what Ishbosheth claims that green area? This is all the area that that Ishbosheth or Abner really claims for Ishbosheth. Now this is probably probably a, a good bit more territory than he actually controls. Um, his main support probably came from the area of ben Benjamin, the, the, his his tribe, which is down towards Gibeon. I don't know if you, maybe you guys can't read this, but if you just see the border of the green and the gray where David's reign is, that's about where Gibeon is. Maybe you guys can read it, some of you. Um, so that's, that's probably where his main support is. But, but notice that he's not even confident enough to establish his capital over there. It's way over across the Jordan River in Mahanaim. Uh, you can see that because there's a little star, right, like a capital, up over on the, towards the right of the green area. So that's where, that's where he establishes his a capital, that's pretty much as far from the Philistines on the coast as you could get, as well as pretty far from David. Um, you'll notice that verse 10 of our text tells us that Ishbosheth, he reigned for two years. But verse 11 says that David reigned for seven years in Hebron. So we've got five years here, right, before Ishbosheth is made king in Mahanaim. Likely what's going on there is Abner's just trying to claim some land back from the Philistines, enough so that he can make. Ishbosheth, king of something. Um, and so we see um, there uh, that Ishbosheth is king over Mahanaim. And then uh, down here's Hebron. You can see the other star, right? That's where David is. That's about 29 miles south of 
uh, Gibeon, um, and then, uh, and, and Gibeon we'll see in our next text is where there's going to be an important battle. Uh, up in the north, you'll see Jezreel up very far in the north. There, see that little finger of tan that comes into the green? And that's where the big battle between Saul and uh, all the Philistines was where Saul dies. And the parallel account in First Chronicles actually tells us that um, the Israelites abandoned all their towns in that area after the defeat, and the Philistines took them. And so that's why there's a big section in there that the Philistines are controlling. And they probably controlled a lot more than that, even, at least for a time. Um, so, okay, I just wanted to give you that, that background there. And, and let's turn now to our next section and look at this next battle in the, the town of Gibeon. So, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 32. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Okay, there's those two towns. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young man arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And then they arose and they passed over by number twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned, neither to the right hand nor to the left, from following Abner. And then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men, and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. And then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your brothers to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan. They marched the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants, 19 men, beside Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men, and they took up Asahel 
and they buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Okay, this section teaches us that division is costly. Now, that's my second point. That division is costly. Now, look, sometimes division is necessary. Uh, that's the case for David in our text. He could have decided that it was better for the nation of Israel if he just gave up his claim to being king. But he does not do that because that's not God's will. Notice, right, how important it becomes that earlier, last week we saw this, he asked God what he should do if he should go to Judah before he came, right? He sought the Lord's will before he made a decision. If he had not done that, maybe he would be sitting at Hebron watching civil war war occur and thinking people are dying. Did I make the right choice? Was I just being selfish? I want to help people, not hurt them. But that's not in his conscience, right? Because he made his decisions in accordance with God's will. So division can't always be avoided in the church. There are times when we may have to defend truth, and that may lead to division in the world We may need to send soldiers to war to defend justice or to protect the oppressed. But these things are always costly, especially when they occur between brothers, which is what we see in our text. This is a civil war, Israelite against Israelite. Uh, You know, you look at these sad stories that we just read. I mean, these, these are sad Uh, gruesome stories. We've got these 24 guys that kill each other in this little mini battle tournament thing that's going on. It's sort of like a representative fight. You you think they were probably trying to avoid a big battle, but it clearly did not work out. Uh, You got the story of Asahel dying when he's chasing Abner. That's pretty gruesome. The writer could have just summarized these events, but he doesn't do that. And I think the reason is because he wants his readers to see in a graphic way how terrible and costly this type of division can be. Sometimes it has to be done, but it will always be bitter. So think very carefully before you pursue it. And if you can avoid getting there, do it. Now, it's clear from the numbers right at the very end who eventually won this battle. Abner lost 360 men to David's 20 men. But it doesn't really feel like anyone won, does it? It doesn't feel that way. No one goes home, no one celebrates. Division is costly. Listen to the warning in this text. When brother turns against brother, everyone pays some sort of cost. If there is any division between you and a brother or a sister in the church or perhaps a family member, do everything you can to heal it and seek peace. Don't let the costs become tragic, leading to bitterness down through the years of your life. Let's look at chapter 3 now. We've got to keep moving. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11. So this is chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. There was a long war 
between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? And then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, and to his friends. I've not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Okay, here we see that selfish dividers will divide. I know that's a little wordy, but it's my third point. Selfish dividers will divide. So, you know, Saul, uh, David, sorry, David's decision to divide the country. Uh, this is not a selfish one, okay, right? He's the contrast here. He's the, uh, the good example. Um, it, it's not selfish because he's the one that's actually been anointed by the Lord, first by Samuel, then by the people, to be king. Ishbosheth was just made king by a military commander. And further, right, David asked the Lord. We talked about this already. David asked the Lord before he made a move. We don't see Ishbosheth and Abner asking the Lord anything. And so we see in this text, God blesses David, right? He grows stronger. And the writer illustrates David's growing strength by listing his family in verses 2 to 5. Wives and sons, these are one of the major indicators of a king's power in the ancient Near East. This is definitely a cultural difference that we have to get over in terms of the context. But this is how it was viewed in the ancient Near East. Wives often represented political alliances. So, for instance, David's third wife, there in verse 3, Maka, she's the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, well, it just so happens that Gesher, if you're remembering our map, is, is a country north of Mahanaim. Okay, so clearly there's a, something political going on here. David has managed an alliance with the kingdom above his opponent. Uh, and then, you know, there's also, later on we'll see, we haven't read it yet, but we're going to see that David is going to demand his, for, his, his first wife, Michael, back. Uh, and uh, you may have forgotten about Michael. Uh, she was taken from uh, David by Saul when he went into exile. And so, you know, claiming her back, of course, may have been romantic, but it's definitely political as well. Um, Because being married to Saul's daughter, that would strengthen his claim to the throne. So David is growing in strength. Now, on the other hand, Abner and Ishbosheth have divided the country for selfish reasons. And what we see is that selfish dividers will divide. People who come together for selfish 
reasons will eventually tear each other down. This is why you need to be careful who you enter into a relationship with, right? If you can tell someone's in it for themselves, you can't trust them as a business partner, as a spouse, as a friend. As long as you're meeting their needs, oh, sure, you'll be fine. But as soon as you stop meeting their needs, they'll drop you just like Abner here drops Ishbosheth. As Ishbosheth gets weaker, Abner realized this guy is not my ticket to big city fame. He's not, he's not going to get me where I want to be. And so his first plan is to try to take the throne for himself, to try to move himself towards that place. And so he does that by sleeping with one of Saul's former concubines, Rizpah, in verse 7. In the ancient Near East, this was a very distasteful way of claiming the throne of a former king. He's sort of saying that he's taking Saul's place. In fact, one of David's sons is going to do this to him in the future later on. Probably Abner figured Ishbosheth would just sort of ignore it, uh, would be too afraid to oppose him in this area, but he actually gets up the guts to confront Abner. And so we see that selfish dividers will divide. Those who unite for selfish reasons will eventually tear themselves apart. Okay, so we've been talking about division we're going to shift a little bit here. We're going to look at the priority of peace. So that's my fourth point, the priority of peace. But it's going to take us two steps to see that point. We'll first look at negotiating peace and then salvaging peace. So if you like outlines, you're going to love this. I've got my fourth point, priority of the priority of peace. And then 4A, negotiating peace. And 4B, salvaging peace. Okay, so two steps to, to see the priority of peace here. Let's, um, let's go ahead and read chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. So beginning at verse 12 of chapter 3. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. And then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her, all the way to Behurim. And then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and, and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. And when Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you 
and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Okay, we'll stop there. So, negotiating peace. Uh, We've already begun to see how selfish Abner is, but now we're going to see he is an absolute mercenary. Uh, He's kind of like the Amalekite we saw a couple weeks ago. You may remember that guy. He came to David and he claimed to have killed Saul, right? What was he doing? He's just trying to use David for his own personal advancement. That's what Abner's doing here. Unfortunately, we see this all the time in God's kingdom. People who claim to be followers of Jesus for selfish reasons rather than out of true allegiance. And this is especially a danger when Christians have gained considerable social or political power. This happened in the early church, when the empire of Rome made Christianity the religion of the empire, all of a sudden you had career politicians being appointed as bishops and using the resources of the church for selfish gain and for political advancement. In the United States, this has been a tricky area for the Christian church pretty much throughout our whole history. Christians have often gained a good amount of power in society and politics and culture, which can be a good thing, of course, but there has been the temptation for politicians or for social leaders to claim to represent Christians, the Christian church, Christian ideals, and and done it for their own selfish purposes rather than in, in true sincerity. And this has discredited and greatly harmed the church and the cause of the gospel. We must remember that no one represents true Christianity except for Jesus. But turning back to Abner, here's the the worst part about this guy. For seven years, he has been resisting David's rule. But we learn in this text that that whole time, he has A, known what God's will was, that David should be king, and he would be king. He's known that the whole time. And he's known what was best for the country. Right? So back in, in, in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, we read this a, a bit ago. Uh, he says, the Lord swore to David that he would give him the kingdom. And then we just read in, in verse 18 how he tells the elders of Israel, the elders, publicly he says this. He says, the Lord uh, promised David that he would be the one to save you guys from your enemies. So you should make him your king. Right here, the country of Israel is being attacked on all sides by Philistines. It's divided, and he knows David will be the one to defeat these guys. But for his own selfish reasons, he has refused to submit for seven years. I mean, Abner has God's promises to David memorized, right? He states them to Ishbosheth and to the elders of Israel. And yet he fights them. He fights them. It's, it's unbelievable. You ask yourself, how can someone know God's promises, have watched Saul struggle ineffectually against God's promises for years and fail, and still fight against them himself? 
It's totally irrational. It's the blindness of sin. It's the deceitfulness of the human heart. We saw it with Saul. We see it with Abner. We see it in the people around us. We see it in ourselves. We need to repent of it. If you see it in your brother, do not fail to gently help him to see it as well. Despite all of Abner's sliminess, David negotiates with him. And this is where we see that he prioritizes peace. There's division in the kingdom. People are being hurt. So while David may not have liked, trusted, or respected Abner, he couldn't have. And it must have been humbling throwing this banquet for him, we saw at the end of our text there. But for the sake of peace, David works with him. He does it. However, there's another act in this drama, and so we turn to the final section, uh, verses 22 to 39. So, chapter 3, verse 22. We'll finish this text out. So stick with me. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. And then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab in Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice, and he wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered, as one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. And then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. 
So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Okay, so here we continue to see David prioritizing peace. And so this is the second part of my fourth point, salvaging peace. Now, we're talking about peace here, right? But there's, there's still this division that we saw earlier in the text. It's, it's festering in the heart of Joab, David's army commander. And you can see that one area David has failed is to help his servant to see the priority of peace. He sees it, but he hasn't convinced Joab of it, whether he tried and Joab's personal hatred and jealousy just got in the way, or he just made sure Joab wasn't around when Abner came. Either way, there's a lesson here that when we pursue peace, we've got to make sure the people involved are on board. Joab needs to be convinced that the death of his brother Asahel cries out for peace, not revenge. He needs to see that the needs of the entire nation to be united once more far outweigh his own desires for revenge. Make sure you recognize this. If you want to see divided people unified and brought to peace, first you've got to help them see the value of peace. David fails to do this with Joab, and so his initial attempts at peace fail. Joab kills Abner. That puts an end to that real quick. So now David's got his work cut out for him. He's got to salvage the peace. Uh, First, he publicly denounces Joab and his family with this really nasty curse there at the beginning of the text. Then he commands Joab that he needs to mourn right at the front of the funeral procession, tear his clothes, put on sackcloth. Uh, He himself leads the weeping. Uh, He even composes another lament for Abner. Now, we've seen Abner's character pretty clearly at this point. There's not much to praise. He's selfish. He's vicious. He rejects God when it serves him, and he pretends to serve God when that serves him. He's not a nice man. So David says what he can say. Abner, you should not have died this way. You shouldn't have been betrayed in a back alley by a wicked man. It reminds you of the way that David lamented Saul, right? He, he doesn't bring up all the bad things about Abner now that he's died. Everyone knows them. He doesn't bring them up. He laments what he can truly lament. Abner's death was unjust. So David weeps for that. He can genuinely do that. Justice is important. And David goes on to fast. Even when the people suggest that he eat something, he refuses. Notice how grassroots David is. He, he speaks to the people, right? This is an important thing to notice. Uh, it's a theme throughout his life. David may have failed to convince Joab of the priority of peace, but he does convince the people. They understand it wasn't his will to murder Abner. He salvages the peace, as we'll see in the next, uh, next week in the next text. But some of you may be thinking, 
you know, does David go a little far here? I mean, all the weeping, the fasting, the comment in verse 38 about a great man dying. This all kind of seems like an act or maybe just at least a little bit self-serving or overkill. But we need to remember two things here. First, David's culture was much better at mourning death than we are, much more dramatic about it. Uh, So there's a disconnect. His weeping might seem a little bit much for us, but maybe totally normal in that context. Um, And then secondly, how David acts here, I think, reveals um, what he prioritizes. He wants peace for the nation. And this is a potentially divisive event. But he manages, I think, to turn it into a unifying event. He reacts appropriately and he communicates with the people well. Uh, Facing division and dealing with a selfish man, David prioritizes peace. And That's exactly what we see that Jesus did when he came to earth as well. Even at his final supper with his disciples, they are selfishly arguing about who's the greatest among them, right? There's Joab and Abner coming out of their hearts right there. Who's the best? Who's the greatest? That's what it means for them to be in in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus is so gentle with them. He explains that this is not how it is in his kingdom. The greatest should be the youngest child. And the one who rules should be the one who serves. His priority for his people is peace. And he will pay the greatest price to obtain that peace for them, to reconcile them one to each other, And, of course, with God through his blood. But I don't want to leave this text without getting the big picture because that's sort of the point of looking at so many verses in one morning. There's obviously a lot of ugly things that happen in this text. But what do we see happening despite all that ugliness? What do we see happening despite these selfish men, these jealous men? God's promises are being fulfilled. Abner's and Joab's, they will rise up within our midst, within the church, within the kingdom of God, who openly oppose God's kingdom or who try to subvert it from the inside by using it for their own selfish purposes. But they will always fail. And God's promises will always win. In fact, they will be used by God to accomplish his purposes. Just like the actions of Joab and Abner are used by the Lord to fulfill peace in the nation of Israel. Just look at the big picture structure here, right? Abner is opposing David, okay? That's what we see throughout this text. He tries military opposition. He fails. He tries building himself up by taking Saul's concubine. He fails. He tries making himself stronger by joining David. Uh, That fails when another selfish man murders him. And all along, God's promises to David and to his descendants and to us to form an everlasting nation, a kingdom, are being fulfilled. 
Do not be discouraged by the Abners or the Joabs of this world. There's much to be worried about these days. We see here in David's life that even the actions of those who are evil can be used by God to fulfill his promises. Even when ugly things arise in our own hearts, and they will, they cannot defeat God's promises because his anointed king is prioritizing peace. The promises of God will always win. Jesus has done and continues to do whatever needs to be done to unify his kingdom, to sanctify it for that day when he will gather all of us together from from all nations, from all time, into a visible kingdom that will fill the heavens, that will fill the earth. Children of God, that is God's promise to you. And he will fulfill it as surely as he fulfilled his promises to David. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us promises that we know will be fulfilled. We don't have just our own lives to look at. We, we can look back far and see the beginning of your kingdom in the reign of David, the man who would, who would, uh, whose descendants would reign upon your throne and whose a greater son, Jesus, would reign forever on that throne. And we can see the beginning of that kingdom and we can see how you fulfilled your promise to bring it to pass, even despite the actions of evil men who tried to use it, who tried to oppose it. And that gives us great courage, Lord. As we know that your promises are for us too, you welcome us into that kingdom. You welcome us into your nation of holy priests, a people that you are perfecting. And you promise us that you will fulfill your promises. And we know that we have a King, Jesus, who will do everything he needs to do to make sure those promises come true. He has done it. He has given his blood for us. He intercedes for us even now. And we need that, Lord. We do ask for his intercession every day for us as we seek to live in this world where there are, there's much division, Lord. Teach us to live in peace. Help us to grow in unity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.